Good morning. It's nice to have you here today. My, uh, my voice is going to be somewhat up and down, and it's doing what it wants to do today, and I have little control over it. But uh, we will do the best we can. I want to give you a picture of a little bit of what happens behind the scenes here. Things we're not even aware of. Last night, people in the hospitality ministry came in here and fixed all the food for your hospitality blessings today. And some folks came in behind them and ate it, cleaned them out. So today they rallied and set up everything cooked again and set everything up and had a beautiful display out in the foyer and the table fell down and broke things and they lost food. And uh, our choir director, Pilar, where, there she is, she broke out with poisoned oak. It was all over her face. I saw a picture of it, and it looked like she had uh, kissed a semi-truck going 55 miles an hour. And so she had to deal with that. We had all kinds of technical difficulties here. And then I woke up this morning, and my body has decided to go back through puberty again. <laughs> I may actually end up with a deep man's voice, which would be worth the process. So anyways, all these disruptions that I'm aware of, and I don't even know what happened to you today. All I can think of is Bill Gaither's song, I feel like something good is about to happen. And I'd like for you to turn to the person next to you and say, I just feel like something good is about to happen. Today we're continuing with our study on the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Did God override Pharaoh's free will and force him to resist the demands of Moses? If so, would that not demonstrate that God is an unjust and cruel being? If this is understood as it first appears, God would have put Pharaoh in a position where it would be impossible for any of the plagues to have any beneficial effect. What if Pharaoh was ready and willing to let Moses and his people go, but God wouldn't allow him to express it? Then God punished Pharaoh by sending plagues and killing children throughout all of Egypt for something God himself had done. This makes God out to be unjust and cruel. So we continue our study. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 7, verse 3. Exodus chapter 7, verse 3. God is quoted here as saying, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Here it says that God would harden Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 8 verse 15. 
But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. Here we find that Pharaoh is the one who hardens his heart. In Exodus 7 verse 13 we read, <clears throat> And Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them as the Lord said. We have a passive form that indicates Pharaoh's heart was hardened without giving any indication as to the source. So you have God hardening his heart, you have Pharaoh hardening his heart, and you have it just happening. What's the truth? Well, the truth will come to us today when we begin to understand language. You see, the Bible was written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and in Greek. And each language has its own way of using certain types of words and phrases that might appear odd to a person not familiar with the language. Let me give you some from English. He bit his head off. Well, we know that somebody jumped on someone and really chewed him out, but he didn't bite his head off. She is hitting the streets. She's not out there pounding the streets. She maybe is looking for a job and she's going from place to place. She's hitting the streets. The uh, choir who's endured this twice so far, third time now, do you still feel like something good is going to happen? <laughs> they suggested a few for me. Uh, he was arrested by the long arm of the law. I am green. <clears throat> I am green with envy. He kicked me in the teeth. Well, we know what these mean, and they're not to be taken literally. And thus it is in the scriptures as well. Sometimes we get in trouble when we take things literally. And so may I encourage you again, when you read the Bible, read with a humble spirit. Read with a teachable attitude. Do not read and then be convinced this is right and walk away and never come back to that thought again. We are constantly being educated in the ways of God and it is a growing process. The people who are in the worst condition are the people who think they've figured it out. When you think you've figured this out, you're in trouble. We should always be learning and always be open to learning. And passages can be renewing themselves before us over decades of reading them. Now let's begin with the Hebrew language. In the Hebrew language, it can have active verbs that were used to express not the doing of the something, but the permission of it, which the person is said to do. So we're talking about permission here. Go to Exodus 4, verse 21. <clears throat> God is speaking. He says to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. 
a proper understanding of this in the Hebrew language context and active verbs is God is saying, I will permit or allow his heart to be hardened. Now we see this in other expressions in the scriptures. Please turn to Jeremiah 4 verse 10. Jeremiah 4 verse 10. Jeremiah is written about 550 years before Christ. Well, 600 years to 550 years before Christ, about a 50-year time period. And uh, we read here, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, surely you have greatly deceived this people and Jerusalem, saying you shall have peace, whereas the sword reaches to the heart. Jeremiah is saying, God... You have deceived this people and the people in Jerusalem. You have said peace and there's a sword piercing to their heart. Now in a proper understanding, God allowed the people to be deceived by the false prophets. And the false prophets were preaching peace. Jeremiah himself was going around saying, Babylon is coming. They're going to ransack this country. We need to surrender to them. He was arrested and put in prison as being a traitor, as being one who did not know and understand what was right for Israel. Well, let's look at another example, and these will become clearer because I will bind them off in an irrefutable manner. Uh, let's go to Ezekiel 14, verse 9. Ezekiel, you go to the right of Jeremiah, and you'll come to it. Ezekiel 14, verse 9 says, And if the prophet is induced to speak anything, I, the Lord, have induced that prophet, that I will stretch, and I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people. Now this is a fascinating thing. If the prophet is deceived and has spoken a thing, that, then I have deceived the prophet and I will destroy him. Now that's an awful way to look at God unless we understand it the way the Hebrews did that God has permitted him to deceive himself and you may wonder well how how can I demonstrate that well I'm glad you asked go to James chapter 1 James is in the New Testament if you're not familiar with where it is just go to the back of your Bible and come forward to the left and you'll come to James. It's towards the back of the Bible. James 1 verse 13 says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Deceiving someone is evil. The Bible says clearly, God does not tempt people. He's not tempted by evil and he does not tempt people by evil. Verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. I will harden his heart means 
I will permit or allow his heart to be hardened. Now, there's another aspect of the Hebrew and Greek language and their use of figurative speech. It is very closely associated with metaphor. And there's a highfalutin word called metonymy. And that's where they will take the subject. And the subject is mentioned. That's the metonymy. But it's not about the subject. The subject is mentioned. But it is only a reference to the circumstances of the subject's influence. Now that's confusing, I'm sure. But I'm going to help you to understand as we go on. We're talking about a name or a word that is employed to mean something other than that name or word. Let me ask you a question. <clears throat> How many of you have ever read Shakespeare? Let me see your hands. Well, quite a few of you. None of you have ever read Shakespeare. He's dead. And besides, how can you read a man? Do you understand what I just said? That's the metonymy. We're not talking about Shakespeare. We're talking about his writings, his essays, his screenplays, all those types of things. That's an example of this figure of speech. Now we're going to see this in the Gospel of John. I'd like for you to turn there. John chapter 4, verse 1. John chapter 4, verse 1. It says, it says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, verse 2, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. I can show you three other verses that say clearly Jesus baptized. But 4, verse 2 says he did not. So what are we talking about here? Jesus apparently did not baptize, though the Bible in three verses says that he did. Here's what's happening. His influence and teaching caused it to be done. Jesus, the subject, is mentioned, but is the circumstance of his influence that is intended. His teaching was responsible for people being baptized. And his followers are the ones who baptized them. Now let's go to the Old Testament for an example. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 16. <clears throat> 1 Kings chapter 16. Verse 26. I just had this thought come through my mind. I don't know how well it will play, but I feel compelled to share it. And that is if, if any of you have compassion and pity upon me for what's happening with my voice, I just ask that you up your offering to the church budget and we'll all be happy. 
1 Kings 16, verse 26, it's referring to Omri, who was a king in Israel. Now, a little background will be helpful here. The first king was Saul. The second king was David. The third king was Solomon. The fourth king was Solomon's son, Rehoboam. When Rehoboam became king, the kingdom split into two, and he was left with the southern kingdom, which was Judah and Benjamin and the Levites that lived there. That's known as the kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom, which was made up of the other tribes off in the north, became the kingdom of, well, Jeroboam became their king. You Rehoboam in the south, Jeroboam in the north. Now Jeroboam served idols. He never served God. In fact, for the 200 plus years that there will be a northern kingdom, not one of those kings ever serve God. In the southern kingdom, some serve God and some don't serve God. But in the northern kingdom, not one king ever serves God. In around 722 BC, they're taken captive by the Assyrians and they're wiped out. Judah will continue until uh, 600 BC and they're taken captive into Babylon but they're allowed to return 70 years later. So that's our background. 1 Kings 16 verse 26 is talking about Omri. He's one of those wicked kings of the northern kingdom. For he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam the son of Nebat and in his sin by which he had made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Here we are told in the Bible that the first king of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, caused the people to sin. Is that possible? Can anybody cause us to sin? No. It's always our choice. But the Bible says he caused them to sin. It even gets more interesting. Look at 1 Kings 22, verse 52. 1 Kings 22, verse 52. Speaking of Ahaziah, one of the sons of Ahab, it says, He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. So this guy walked in the way of Jeroboam, who made the people sin. Well, first of all, we've already learned that you cannot make people sin. However, let me ask you, that's in real time. Jeroboam's been dead for hundreds of years and he's still causing people to sin. How can that be? Because Jeroboam is the subject that is mentioned, but it is the circumstance of his influence that is intended. The influence of Jeroboam and how he started that country is what was still affecting it in that day. And it was causing people or giving people opportunity to want to sin. Jeroboam could not make them sin. He could not force his contemporaries or his successors to sin. Rather, he was used as an example that they chose to follow. It was his influence that was intended. So we've seen in the language that we have permission and we have 
influence. We're going to continue with influence because it is prevalent in the scriptures. And we're going to discover today that when we read something in the Bible, we need to be careful lest we, that you know, we just say, well, that's what it says and that's what I'm going to believe. Well, that's okay on certain levels, but we want to make sure we understand what the Bible is actually saying. And I will hopefully open your eyes to that today. Look at Acts chapter 1. Now in this part of the book of Acts, Jesus has just gone to heaven. He has his followers on earth. They have not yet received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And they, they started out with 12 apostles, but Judas, as you know, betrayed Jesus and then hung himself. So he's no longer one of the 12. They're talking about replacing him. And Peter is talking, and he rehearses a little bit of the history of what took place. And before I read this, I want to ask you, how many of you believe the Bible is true? Let me see your hands, please. Okay. Now keep that hand ready because I have another question. Verse 18. Now this man, that's Judas, purchased a field with the wages of iniquity. By the way, what were the wages of iniquity? What did he get for betraying Jesus? He got 30 pieces of silver. That's correct. And someone is right. The wages of iniquity is death. That's true. But in this Context are talking about the 30 pieces of silver. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. That's a kind way of saying after it was all over, he hung himself. The rope that he used to hang himself or whatever it was broke and his body fell and rolled upon the, the jagged rocks and he was ripped to shreds and his entrails burst out all over everywhere. That's how the guy ended. So, we believe the Bible is true. How many of you believe this verse is true? Let me see your hands. Oh, really? Did Judas buy a field with that money? Bible says he did. Did he? Let's go to Matthew 27 and see what the Bible says about the whole story. Matthew 27, we begin with verse 3. <clears throat> then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. What did Judas do with the 30 pieces of silver? He threw them down. He didn't buy anything with it. Well, watch what happens. But the chief priests took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful for them to put 
It's not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Now this man purchases a field with the wages of iniquity we read in Acts chapter 1. But later we find out he didn't do any of that. It was purchased by the priests. So what does it mean? It means this. Judas, the subject, is mentioned, but it is the circumstances of his influence that is intended. Do you see that now? Thus, when we come to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, we discover that two things. God permitted or allowed Pharaoh's heart to be hardened. And God provided the circumstances and occasion for Pharaoh to have to make a decision. That would be your influence. God sent Moses to place his demand before Pharaoh. Moses merely announced God's instructions, confirmed by miracles, but Pharaoh made up his own mind to resist God's demands. But because God, the subject is mentioned, but it is the circumstances of God's influence that is intended. So I want you to listen to this very carefully. <clears throat> God is responsible for everything in the universe. He has provided the occasion, the circumstances, and the environment in which all things, including people, operate. But he is not guilty of wrong or causing evil. God always allows humans to exercise their freedom of choice. By understanding the use of language, we recognize that God can be charged with no injustice, and the Bible can be charged with no contradiction. Humans were created with the capacity to choose and are culpable for their own actions. Today, God has given us permission to make choices. And God is using circumstances to influence us to choose forgiveness of our sins and to choose to have eternal life. He will not force us to decide one way or another, but all of us will decide one way or another. God will never force us to choose him. And I don't know that force is going to be the right word, but you're going to understand what, what I'm saying. But we are going to be forced to make a decision. And there's only one of two decisions we can make. We can't have two decisions. We can't be between the two points. We can't say, I just want to be neutral in this. No. We either are for God or we're against God. There's no in-between. That's our choice to make. God says, look, I will forgive your sins and I will give you eternal life, but it's your choice. Do you want to accept that? If you want to say to God, no, I'd rather have my sins and I'd rather go to an eternal damnation 
That's your choice. But every one of us must make the choice. And so my question is today, is there anyone here who wants to choose God? Is there anyone here who wants to say, I, I get it. I want my sins forgiven. I want you to walk with me and I want to walk with you and I want to go to eternity with you. Is there anyone here that is willing to say that to God? If you are, I invite you to stand. Father in heaven, thank you for the freedom to choose and thank you for giving us such a beautiful choice. We just praise you for the forgiveness of sins. And we praise you for the hope of eternal life. Lord, we are willing. Teach us now to walk with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.